My desire this morning is to finish up Romans chapter 10. I want to begin reading in verse 9. Romans chapter 10, verse 9. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified. And with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the Scripture says everyone who believes in Him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. The same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing His riches on all who call on Him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But how are they to call on Him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in Him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the Gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what He has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the Word of Christ. But I ask, have they not heard? Indeed they have. For their voice has gone out to all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. But I ask, did Israel not understand? First, Moses says, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. Then Isaiah is so bold as to say, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. But of Israel, he says, all day long, I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. Now, I have been gone for two weeks. The two weeks prior to that when I preached, we did not deal with Romans. So I think it's been five or six weeks since we've been here. We started this series over two years ago. I think it's safe to assume that a lot of you, probably half of you or more, were not even here when we started the series. So, since we're jumping back in, let's kind of bring everything up to speed. Let's do a quick overview of where we have come from. Romans has 16 chapters. I hope to finish up the 10th chapter today. So that's, that's where we've come so far. 10 chapters. Maybe you have been here, but you've forgotten. So whether you haven't been here, or whether you have and you've forgotten what road we've come down, or maybe you even remember, let's 
walk through this real quickly. Turn back to chapter 1 of Romans. Let me tell you something. We're dealing with something here in Romans that has to do with every one of you. I hope you'll watch this. Listen, we're going to go through this real fast. And I don't have time, obviously, to deal with every verse, nor even with every chapter. And I certainly don't have the time right now to answer every question that you might have if you haven't been here through this entire series. You can ask those afterwards. If you have questions, you can ask me, you can ask others here. I'm not going to promise you that I'm going to try to answer them all. What I want to do is I want to give a brief overview. I want you to see the, the main thrust. When Paul opens up in chapter 1, he has one main intent. Let me show you that. After he gets done with his introduction, we pick up in verse 15. What Paul does here is he really solidifies the basic thesis or the theme of the entire book. You see what it is? Verse 15, let's pick up there. Paul says, I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Verse 16. For I am not ashamed of the Gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And verse 17, For in it, that it, that pronoun is the Gospel. In it, in the Gospel, something is revealed. You know what's revealed in it? The righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. Okay, what's that all about? He sets the theme. What's the theme? The theme is the Gospel. Well, everybody says, yeah, I, I, I know about the Gospel. Everybody's here heard that word before. Look, what I'm telling you is this. Paul was eager to preach the Gospel. You know what the Gospel is? It's a message that is proclaimed. It's not just any message. Because in the proclamation of this message, the power of God unto salvation. You know what? You know what salvation is? What is salvation? What is it? Is that a word that we're even familiar with? That the culture is familiar with? Salvation. Being saved. It's the idea of being rescued. From what? Well, I tell you this, when you get over to Romans chapter 5, you know what it says we need to be rescued from? I dealt with this weeks back. What is it that we need to be rescued from? From God. From the wrath of God. Yes, it's true that we're saved from sin. Scripture substantiates that. But the most fearful thing that you have to fear because of your sin is God who is angry with you because of your sin. What is the Gospel all about? It's about a message that when believed, remember, it's the power of God is revealed from faith to faith. It is believing a message 
that saves us from the wrath of God. There is a power that is released in a certain message. Gospel means good news. Now folks, it's good news when you've got an angry God at your heels and there is a way to turn that angry God into a loving Father. That is good news. How does it happen? A message is proclaimed. Paul was eager to preach it. He was eager to proclaim it. That's what we've got, folks. Paul sets the stage here for us. Now listen to me. Every one of you in this room, in that room over there, if you do not believe this message, if it is not the power of God to you for your salvation, this is a very personal thing. You need to understand something. The Gospel is good news on an independent, individual basis. You must believe this Gospel. It's not enough that your parents have or the guy next to you in the seat there has believed it. You must believe it. And I mean believe it. Believe it in a way that there is a power of God revealed in your life savingly. That's what we're talking about here. And if you don't believe this message, you're not saved. There is no salvation. Which means very shortly, you who are already under the wrath of God are going to come into that place where that wrath is going to be realized. Experientially, the sufferings and the torment will become real. Now here's the thing. Paul has a message. If you guys think about this, just let this really, let this really come home. God is determined to rescue sinners by giving them a message, a particular message, not just anyone, but a particular one, that when believed, it results in salvation. It is actually a message that the Spirit of God is pleased to effectually put forth power through a message spoken. Now Paul wants you to know what that Gospel is. What this good news is. So as we move forward from here, let's jump over to chapter 3. You guys turn there. Chapter 3, verse 9. Let me tell you something, my friends. You'll never realize just what good news this is until you come to see the bad news for what it is. And that's where Paul takes us. He talks about good news, and then he spends the last half of chapter 1, all of chapter 2, the first half of chapter 3, dealing with the bad news. And I'll tell you, as he sums this whole deal up, this is what he says. Verse 9, we've charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. Now that's bad news. You say, how is that bad? You know what it means to be under sin? Do you know what it means for Paul to basically evaluate all of mankind, every one of us by nature, and to come to that conclusion, you are under sin? What does it mean? 
tells us what it means. Look there. As it is written, verse 10 says, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they've become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Now, did, did you catch that? No one does good. None is righteous. What he's saying is this. When you take all of mankind collectively and you bring them all together and you boil it all down, guess what? Not one good thing comes out of it. Because listen, if you boiled all the works of all of man down and one good thing fell out of it, it would be impossible for Paul to say there's none that does good, not even one. Because if one good deed could be produced in all of mankind by nature, then it could be said that someone did some good thing one time, and yet Paul says there's no exception. None do good. There's none righteous. All of man boiled down by nature is depraved. He is desperately wicked. You say, how is that? I mean, don't some lost people go visit grandma at the nursing home? Don't some give money to, what's the organization that comes to your work and wants your money? United Way. Don't some people give to United Way? I mean, don't, don't some, isn't, Paul, you're exaggerating here. This can't be right. I mean, we know, we look around, we see people. There are, there are people, you know, if I drop my Bible right here, somebody probably come pick it up. You guys have done that. You know what Paul's saying? He's not saying that it's impossible for Christians to do good. He is boiling man down in their natural fallen state. And he says, prior to being saved, not one of you in this room ever did one good thing. None of you were righteous. None of you did one good thing. You say, yeah, but didn't we do... Listen. The highest commandment is to love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. I'll tell you this. People seemingly do good things. From, from a human perspective, it seems good. But it's not because they love God with all their heart. They do it because they love their idols. They love something else. They love themselves. They love money. They love attention. They love applause. They love their children. They love their parents. But not because they love God. All are under sin. And I'll tell you what. Paul, Paul seeks to personify sin like it's some dark Lord. When he says you're under sin, he means you're under its power. When you come under the sin's power, which all of us have, because we all spring forth from Adam. Adam fell into sin. He and all of his progeny after him came under that power. Folks, it is such power. We are in such bondage. We are such slaves to sin that you cannot do one good thing. You know what is so amazing about this? is One thing that sin does as well in its mastery is it blinds men to realize what they truly are. I guarantee this. Go up and down these streets out here. I'll find 99 people out of 100 that will tell me they're good people. And yet, what does the Word of God say? Are they good? It says they've never done good. And yet they think they're good. It, you know why? Because sin 
Part of the depravity of it is man becomes blind. Man becomes stupid. Man becomes senseless. Man does not have the ability to perceive things rightly. I'll tell you this, sin is deceitful and it deceives us, does it not? Christians in this room, when you were lost, you thought the same thing the world out there thinks. You thought you were good people. Oh yeah, yeah. you weren't perfect. You'd admit that you had some sin in your life, but overall you were generally a pretty good guy or lady, right? And yet God looked upon you and you know what He saw? He saw just what it says in Isaiah 1. Putrefying sores from the top of your head to the bottom of your feet. You were defiled through and through. All the works you did, the best they ever were, were filthy menstrual claws. And I'm quoting Scripture, folks. That's as graphic as God is. He looks at mankind and He finds them to be a stinking, foul, filthy mess. There's nothing in them that makes them presentable whatsoever. This is where Paul's coming through the book of Romans. He says, I've got a gospel for you. I've got some good news. But you've got to realize how sick you are. And so he goes through and he shows whether it's Gentile or whether it's Jew. All together, all of them, they're in the same place. What place? They're not righteous. None of them are good. None of them do good. They're all under the power of sin. Sin masters them. You say, I don't feel like I'm being mastered. I don't feel when I'm lost that I, I'm a slave. You know why? Because your will is just as depraved and just as wretched and just as dark. You say, I, I, I did what I wanted to do. That's exactly right. But you see, that's the kind of bondage. That's being under the power of sin. Look, I'm not going to tell you that when you're lost, when you're in the natural state, you're not free to do what you want to do. You do what you want to do. I did what I wanted to do. You say, I didn't feel like a slave, or I don't feel like a slave if you're in that state right now. No, you won't feel it. Because unlike slavery that we think about in the South when, when the black men were held captive and they... they had to work against their will and they were mistreated against their will. It's not like that in this kind of slavery. This kind of slavery, we're more than happy. We're hungry for sin. We drink sin like water. It's nice to us. It's desirable to us. It's not contrary to our will. Our will is just as corrupt. It's under the power of the sin. And so we don't feel the slavery. And yet, Scripture says we're under its power. That's the bad news. That's the bad news that makes the good news really good. Now, what else is dealt with here? Look at Romans 3.19. Paul not only says, okay, I'm going to deal with the Gospel. I'm going to give you the bad news. He wants us to see how the law of God fits into the whole thing. I mean, we think about the Ten Commandments. We speak about them. People, people talk about that all the time. See, here's one of the things. Typically, the people out there in the streets that you go out and you knock on their door and you ask them, do you, th you think you're a pretty good person? Yeah, I'm a pretty good person. Do you keep God's commandments? Well, not all the time, but you know, I try. and I'm, I do the best I can. And, you know, I realize there's some defects here and there. Listen, Paul wants us to know about the law too because that's very instrumental in this whole gospel matter. Look what he says, verse 19. 
We know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. Now listen, to be under law is the same thing as to be under sin. They're both the same thing. They're to be lost. If you're lost in this place, you are under sin and you are under law. What does the law say to those who are under the law? This is what it does. So that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin. You know why the law was given? Was it given for you to keep in order to be able to merit favor with God? Was it given to you to keep in order for you to get to heaven? You know what it says here? It was given in order that we might have a knowledge of sin. You see, what is sin? Sin is when we break God's law. That's what it's all about. You know what the law was given for? To shut your mouth. Why does man need to have his mouth shut? Well, for just the reason I told you. You go up and down the streets, what are you going to find? 99 out of 100 people are going to tell you what? They're good. But what does the law do? The law shuts their mouth. Why? Because as soon as you start stating God's law, people are suddenly confronted by the fact they haven't kept it. Right? And James says if you violated it at one point, what have you done? whole thing comes crashing down, folks. You break God's law at one point, one time. In fact, in Galatians 3.10 it says this. It says that you are cursed if you do not keep and do every single thing written in the book of the law. You break one thing one time in God's book of the law and you are cursed. That's it. You see what the law does is it exposes sin. What the law does is it shuts men's mouths. It never was given to provide a way to heaven. But here's the thing. By works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. Here comes this word justified. Okay, what does that mean? Justified means to be declared innocent. Does it not? You go into a court of law, they justify you. That means they're declaring you innocent. Versus what? Declaring you guilty. If you're declared guilty, then you have to suffer the punishments of being guilty. If you're declared innocent, you walk away free. Well, here's, here's the thing. Men have sinned. Are we guilty or are we innocent? We're guilty. Over and over. That's what the law does. It shuts our mouth that we can't say we're innocent. Because we're not innocent. We are guilty. Well, here's, here's what happens. Since we are guilty, nobody can ever be justified by the law. Is there anybody in the room that has never broken the law? I dare you to raise your hand. That's right. And so, the law shuts our mouth. But what it says here is, by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. We can all realize how that is, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. We learn about it. Okay, now jump to verse 21. But now, the righteousness of God. Now hold on there. Remember back in Romans 1, verse 17. In it, in the Gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. You remember that? Okay, here's the thing about the Gospel. In it, the righteousness of God is revealed. What's that? Well, here it is, folks. The only way anybody ever gets to heaven is if they're righteous. Have you been righteous? The law shuts our mouth to that. 
None of us can declare we're innocent. We've all broken. But in the Gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. How? By works? It's revealed from faith to faith. Look what, look what we have here. The righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. What the Gospel's all about is how to become righteous without having to keep the law to be righteous. You see, if you kept the law perfectly, you would be righteous. But the law, none of us are ever going to be justified by that for the simple reason of this. None of us have ever kept it. So here's what the gospel is all about. Since none of us have kept the law, if we had kept it, we would be righteous. But we haven't kept it. Okay, we haven't kept it. The gospel comes along and says, look, you've got some hope. You've got a great hope. You've got a massive hope. God is offering you righteousness through another way than by the law. The righteousness that God requires. That's what the righteousness of God is. It's the righteousness God requires in you. And it's possible to get it some way other than by the law. Which ought to make us just jump for joy because we've all broken the law. Just like Moses came down and shattered those things. We've done the same. We've shattered them over and over. But look what happens. Righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. The law and the prophets bear witness to it. Look at verse 22. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. It's a righteousness that is for all who believe. God actually gives righteousness to those who don't have it. It's for those who believe. Faith in Jesus Christ. There is no distinction. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's why we can't get there by the law. But we can be justified. Verse 24, by grace. That means it's not something you earned. It's not something you worked out. It's something that God freely gives you. By His grace as a gift. Through the redemption. Redemption has to do with paying the price. Jesus Christ paid the price. Verse 25, whom God put forward. That's Christ Jesus. He put Him forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. You know what a propitiation is? It means that all the wrath that God had towards you as a sinner, all of His burning anger and fury, which you deserve to suffer in the fiery torments of hell, Jesus Christ stood there and drank that cup, took that blow, suffered that wrath. He took the punishment of God's people. Propitiated. Redemption. He paid the price for all those who trust Him. Look, folks. This is what the heart of the Gospel is all about. How can I be made right with God? That's what it's all about. Man by nature is not right with God. Why? He's broke his law. He's, his mind is of the flesh. He's at enmity with God. He's hostile to God. He has no desire whatsoever to keep God's law. And in fact, in Romans 8 verse 7, it says he cannot. Why? He is fundamentally defective. 
to the place where morally he cannot keep God's law. He hates God. He's at enmity against Him. Listen, if you've never heard this, if this is foreign to you, if this is new to you, I'm telling you, this is exactly what the Gospel is all about. This is at the heart of the matter. You come over to Romans 4 and verse 5. Look what it says there. He justifies the ungodly. God justifies. If you have faith in Him who justifies the ungodly, hear those words. God justifies the ungodly. What does that mean? It means He declares righteous ungodly people. Oh, you can be in here today with a mountain of sin on your shoulders. And by faith in Jesus Christ, in a moment, you can be declared perfectly just before God. Not good people. Some people have this misconstrued idea. I got to clean up my life. I got to get right before I can go to church. I got to do this before God will accept me. No, don't you see what it says? God justifies the ungodly. Not the good guy. Not the guy that's repairing and, and working on getting his life right. An ungodly man or woman can come to Christ by faith. And God says, perfect, just, righteous in my sight. I accept you in Christ's stead. I accept. Look, go now with me to Romans 5. Verse 19. Look at the second half of that verse. Romans 5.19 By the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Are you wondering how is it possible for God to make you righteous when you're ungodly? It's not just because God fictitiously dreamed up this righteousness to give to you, or just decided to sweep your sin under the rug. What you need to understand is that the very penalty your sins demanded and the very righteousness the law required of you, Jesus Christ came and perfectly fulfilled it. His obedience is counted to me. By His obedience, I am declared righteous. That's what the verse says there. Read it with me again. By the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. And what, what's the fruits of that? Look back at verse 5.1. Therefore, since we have been justified or declared righteous, not by works of the law, not by what we do, not by your church going, by faith. Faith in Jesus Christ. Once there is that true faith, once we cling to Christ by faith, we are declared righteous in the courtrooms of heaven. And what happens? We are no longer enemies of God. What does it say? We have peace. The warfare is done. And it's not just we were enemies of Him and now we're no longer at war with Him. Let me tell you something. This goes back to what we need to be saved from. We need to be saved from Him. The most fearful and terrifying thing that you need to understand is as long as you are in your sin, under its power, under the law, God is your enemy. 
and He is after you, and His wrath abides on you, and condemnation is over your head already. Do you know what happens when you look to Christ in faith? God lays down His weapons that He meant to use to you. And I'll tell you how He lays them down. Every sin you've committed, He sharpened that sword. The measure of your sins built up greater and greater. And it's not as though His wrath just dissipated. Let me tell you again, Jesus Christ was a propitiation. That sword was sharpened. And God didn't just blunt it off just to let you go. Justice had to be satisfied. He took that sharpened sword and He chopped with all of His might right on His Son. His Son took the fullness of that blow. He drank the entire cup. When He said it is finished, it's because every sin of God's people had been drunk to the greatest depth in the souls of Christ. He endured. He took that blow. He took that wrath. He took that death. He shed His blood. That's what happened on Calvary's cross. God poured out His burning anger towards His Son. And God the Son and God the Father somehow wrenched apart in unfathomable ways where the Son could say that He had been forsaken of the Father. Oh, you better believe that sword was sharp against you. But you need to know how the edge was taken off. It was taken off if it slipped through and released the blood of the Son of God. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. By His obedience, an obedience that took Him all the way to the cross, shedding His blood, He obeyed the Father. He kept that law perfectly. He redeemed the time like we talked about. And you know what He had to offer? He who knew no sin became sin in my place. That I might become the righteousness of God. By His obedience, I am made righteous. This is all by faith. I don't have to work. I don't have to do this and do that. I don't have to repair and reform. I don't have to do that. And thank God I don't. Many years ago, I came to Christ just wretched and filthy in my sin. And I called upon the Lord. And God rushed in and bestowed upon me a righteousness not my own. Oh, folks, you not only have peace with God. Romans 5.5 5 says God's love is poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit has been given to us. You want to know how that love is poured into our hearts? All you've got to do is read a little further right there. It says God shows His love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You know what happens? Once that peace is made, the Spirit of God floods our hearts with visions of the cross, takes us to the cross over and over, and we have a sense of the love of God poured forth to us through those manifestations of the glory of the cross done in our behalf. Isn't it not so, child of God? Again and again, we find our hearts warmed. We find ourselves melted by these constant bringing back to the cross and God showing us His love for us through what Christ endured on that cross. 
Now here's the thing. This is so free. It is such a massive gift. It is so much outside of our works and so much dependent on what Christ did that somebody is going to say, wow, if this is so free, I might as well get saved and then just go on living in sin. What does it matter? I mean, after all, if you're saved not according to anything you do, but simply looking to Christ and everything He did, might as well just go on sinning. And that brings us to Romans 6, verse 1. Do we continue in sin? That's the question at hand. Can we continue in sin? Is it possible to continue in sin? What does verse 2 say? By no means. Now here's where Paul goes next. He's put forth the bad news. He ushers in the good news. He shows us redemption, propitiation. He shows us an imputed righteousness. He shows us the obedience of the One being reckoned for God's people. Full acceptance. Peace made. Love being communicated. Poured out into our hearts by the Spirit of God. And he says, this is so free. Somebody, and Paul was hearing this in his day, somebody's going to come along and say, well, then it doesn't matter if we sin. Paul says this, let me tell you something else about the salvation of God. When the Gospel comes to you, listen, you need to understand this. When he says the Gospel is the power of God unto salvation, he is not talking about a weak Gospel that saves men and then lets them run on in their sin. Verse 4, you know why you can't do it? Because you are risen to walk in newness of life. What is that? What is being raised from the dead to walk in newness of life? I'll tell you what it is. It's being born again. It's regeneration. It's the new birth. You know what Paul realized? Wherever there was a legal declaration in heaven made on your behalf, saying not guilty, where God declares a sinner righteous, He not only justifies, He not only makes that legal declaration, He does something else. You know what the New Covenant said? The New Covenant said He would forgive our sins. That's the justification end of it. But there was much more to the New Covenant. There's much more to being saved. There's much more to actually having the Gospel become effectual and powerful in your life. What is it? Being risen to newness of life. God said He's going to give you a new heart. God says He's going to write His law on that heart. God says He's going to cause you to keep His statutes and obey His rules. God says He's going to put His fear within you that you not depart from Him. That's what God said. God said He's going to cleanse you from your idols. Have you guys read those passages? That's what He says He's going to do. Look what it says. Verse 11, 6-11. As a saved man or a saved woman, you need to start by thinking right. You need to reckon yourself. You need to count yourselves as dead to sin. Why? Because that's the reality. Verse 14 says, sin will not have dominion over you. And it's not going to. He looks right at those Roman Christians in verse 17. What does he say? We thank God that what happened to you? You have been made obedient from the heart. To what? To the Word of God. 
They have been, why do you thank God for something? Because He did it. God made them obedient from the heart. Listen to me. Look down to verse 22. I want to show you right here what true Christianity looks like. Every single person who has truly been justified in the courts of heaven will be able to identify with Romans 6.22. Every one of you. Because the end there is eternal life. And if this does not describe you, you have not eternal life. What is the process? What is the flow? There is a life described here. This is the only life that leads to eternal life. And what is that life? You've been freed from the dominion and the tyranny of sin. You've been set free from it. And now you have been made a slave of righteousness, a slave of God. And as such, you begin to bring forth these fruits in your life, good fruits, a practice of doing good, doing righteous, imitating Christ. And those fruits lead to something. Sanctification. Becoming holy. And the end of that is what? It's eternal life. We're talking the power of God unto salvation. Once you break into Romans 7 and verse 6, Paul says, look, you guys need to understand something. What happens is that when a person is saved, when the Gospel becomes the power of God for their salvation, when looking to Christ, Christ on the cross, Christ obedient in His life, when a man or a woman looks to that, trusts that for themselves, believes Christ to be a sufficient Savior, cries out to Him, lays hold on Him, when they put their faith there, what we have is this. You no longer serve under the old letter. You no longer are under the law. You now serve in the new life of the Spirit. And that's where Paul goes on from here. The true Christian is not under the law. He's not simply like 7.5 says, being confronted by law, but in our sinful passions, they just get all stirred up by the law, and the end of that is death. We're not there anymore. We don't live in that realm anymore. We're in the realm of the Spirit now. We're not under the old letter. Verse 6 says, we now live in a different realm. We serve in the newness of the Spirit. And what does that life look like? You go over to Romans 8, 4, you see what it looks like. Those who walk according to the Spirit. What's happening in their life? They become those who fulfill the righteous requirement of the law. Scripture says this all over. If you say you know Him, but you don't keep His commandments, you're a liar, the truth isn't in you. Keeping His commandments. We become fulfillers of the law. You go to Romans 13, verse 8, verse 10. What is the fulfilling of the law? I mean, it's love. Are we commanded to love? Yes. In Galatians, Paul says, circumcision, uncircumcision, all those ceremonial law things, they don't matter. What really matters is faith working through love. Love is the issue. And love is the fulfilling of the law. And in the Spirit, we become those who fulfill the law. Not like those who verse 7 says, Romans 8, 7, that are of the flesh. Their mind is on the flesh. They're the ones that don't please God. They're hostile. They don't keep His Word. But you go on down from there and it says we're not like that. We do have the Spirit. In fact, if you don't have the Spirit, you don't belong to Christ. But if you have the Spirit, you're not like those in the flesh. You get down to verse 13 and the, the blazing truth is that 
life, eternal life again, just like in 6.22, but eternal life is attached to something. What is it? Life in the Spirit, putting to death the deeds of the body. If that's not true, then there's no life. I mean, do you all see that? This is where, this is where Paul's Gospel is going. And Paul says, this life in the Spirit, you've got the Spirit who is not the Spirit of slavery. Verse 15, this is the spirit of adoption. And now all of a sudden something happens within us too. There's a yearning for God. There's an intimacy with God. We begin to know God. Isn't that another tenet of the New Covenant? That we would know Him. Everybody wouldn't have to teach their neighbor. There's, there's, a, there's an intimacy which can't be taught in true Christianity. And that floods in as well. We find ourselves just this, this compulsion springing out of us. We cry out, Abba, Father. And then verse 16 there of Romans 8. What happens? The Spirit of God comes in and begins to confirm to us and, and assures us that we are children of God. He bears witness to us. It's experiential. You better believe it. There is an experiential element of true Christianity. If you have not and know not of the witness-bearing of the Spirit of God, especially through the pouring of the love of God into our hearts, through manifestations of the cross, if your life is lived devoid of any type of intimacy with the living God, I'm afraid you have not the Christianity of the Scriptures. Because where the Spirit dwells, there is a closeness. There is a sense of being a child of God. There is this cry that just ushers out forth, Abba. And then what happens? We're given such glorious promises. You've got this glory that I talked about before that literally reaches out, not to be compared with the sufferings. I mean, you've got this glory that envelops us. You've got these promises that all things work together for your good. You've got these promises that God is for you. You've got the promises that if God gave His only begotten Son for you, how is He not going to with, how's he going to withhold any other good thing from you? You've got this idea that's just coming at us of full assurance and the fact that we, nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. This is a glorious gospel. It saves us. Now look, I'm not saying that when you become a Christian, it means that we walk in perfection. But I'm saying life in the Spirit is a holy life. It is a life moving in the direction of fruitfulness and sanctification. And the end of that is eternal life. By the Spirit, you are putting to death the deeds of the body. And if you're not, you're, you're in the flesh. If you're in the flesh, you will die. If you're in the flesh, you're at enmity with God. This is what the Gospel is all about. The Gospel is this massive, mighty, God-ordained means for delivering those who are captive under the power of sin, wrenching them out of the realm of the guilt of that sin, taking away that guilt, cleansing it away by the blood of Jesus Christ, but also bringing about this massive transformation. If you are a child of God, you are not the old man. You are not the old person. You are not the old creature. You are a new creation in Christ. And you are called to reckon yourselves dead to sin. You're living not under that old realm. You're in the realm of the Spirit. This is a, this is a massively glorious Gospel. The salvation of God. He is with us. He is for us. He is going to reckon and work that all things work together for our good if we love Him. 
Spirit of God is going to be with us to the end and even on through eternity, bearing witness to us. You come to Romans chapter 9 and Paul says, but after all these glorious promises, there's a problem. What's the problem? The problem is that somebody's going to say, what about the Jews? Romans 10.1, Paul's praying for their salvation. Why? Well, he says right there in the last four verses of Romans 9, the Jews have not attained unto righteousness. The, the Gentiles have. Why? Romans 9, it says, because God elects. Romans 9 Verses 15 and 16. You know what it says? God has mercy upon whom God has mercy. He saves whom He saves. His compassion upon whom He has compassion. It is not according to man's exertions or man's will. It is according to God. In order that God's purposes of election might stand. But then God also shows us this whole dilemma on the human side. Humanly speaking, what was happening? The Jews were rejecting the Christ. They were stumbling on the stumbling stone. And you know what we find in Romans 10? Without distinction, if you call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, you will experience His riches. All who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. That's what verse 13 says. Verse 14, how are they going to call upon Him in whom they have not believed? How are they going to believe upon Him of whom they have not heard? How are they going to hear without a preacher? How's there going to be somebody to preach unless they're sent? What's all that about? That's how men and women come to know what this gospel is. Do you know what it says? What is it? Verse 19? But they have heard. The Jews had heard. The word of the preachers had gone forth into the ends of the earth. It wasn't like God had not sent forth those to proclaim that truth to them. They had that. The preachers were there. Let me just finish with this. I know we've gone long today. I'm just trying to bring everybody back up to speed. Romans 10.21 God says this, All day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. Can I tell you this? <clears throat> we know from Romans 9 God is sovereign over belief and unbelief. He says there in Romans 9, Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated. He set his love on one and his hatred on another before they were born and had yet done any good or evil. Why? That the purposes of God according to election might stand. 
You see, folks, it's not as though God's word has failed regarding Israel. It was always by faith in Jesus Christ. That's always the way that you attain to righteousness before God. And the Jews would not seek it in Christ. They sought it in keeping their law. But by the law, no one may be justified in the sight of God. Can I tell you something? The Jews rejected Christ. And they perished. Paul says, faith comes by hearing. comes by hearing the word of Christ. But they hadn't. The preachers went to them. In the end, it says, God held forth His arms to this disobedient people. You see it there. Let me tell you something. Is God sovereign over who is saved? You better believe it. Paul's Gospel preaches, teaches that. But don't ever let that lead you to believe that we can't tell sinners and we can't say in our Gospel that God holds out His hands to the rebellious. You know what that is? Holding out the hands means open wide. It's God saying, come. It's God wooing men. It's God inviting men. It's God calling men. Come to You come to me and I will wrap my arms around you. And if your Calvinism has brought you to a place where you can't tell sinners that, then you need to change your understanding of what the Gospel is. You say, how do those two go together? I'm not here today to tell you how they go together. But they're both true. God does sovereignly determine who will be saved. God also reaches forth His hand. I want you to think about something. How does He? How does God extend His hand to the rebellious? You know how He does it? How will they hear unless they have a preacher? How will they preach unless they're sent? We are the ambassadors of Christ. We call men to be reconciled to God. We are. God uses us as His hands that reach forth. Folks, the Jews were disobedient people. God reached forth and they rejected Him. You know his gospel went to? It says right there in verse 20, those who weren't looking for him, the Gentiles, they were the ones and still are today, that's us, who are being swept into the kingdom. There's where we've come. I know that was a lot done real fast. It was a long time morning. I really didn't know how to get back into Romans except by doing this overview. And now, Lord willing, we're, we're going we're gonna to pound through Romans 11 really fast and get to 12. And begin to soak up much of the practical instruction that Paul has for us as a church. Amen. You're dismissed.